Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. I've observed him a little bit on the client side. I mean, the feedback that I got from vintners that he's consulting for, I mean, they're in love. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the friend charm, right? It's the accent. On. He's yes. keeping the accent really it's well. Be, <laughs> but, you know, you expect in a professional environment, like, you right. know, some degree of it's strong personalities, different creative ideas, but right. with him, it's like, it's just a love fest. I know. That's, it's a little bit of a, yeah, we always, always send good things and people want to know, but don't, don't, we're not, it's off the record, tell us what really you think, and I'm like, yeah. but that's what I really, I think, and that's what a lot of people think around the valley, I think is, Philippe is one of those people that have been in one place for so long, and most of the people that ever met him fell in love, and I think the best example is that Philippe started with three clients when he opened, when he started the consulting company, yeah. and two of them is still with us, and we make wow. wine for them, so Lel Vineyards has been 21 years now, uh, and more, so it's, it's 95, so it's going to be t- almost 25 years, it's 24th vintage, and then CV is the same. Uh-huh. Uh, so those two clients, Philippe, when in 95, Philippe started the consulting company, so they were the first clients, and they never left. I mean, they enjoy working with him, and he knows his, they knows his commitment, and he's been performing really well. No, that's definitely worth celebrating. Um, you highlighted something interesting, I think, particularly in, in 2007, Miguel, when you were talking about the shift in viticultural aspect of it and the actual handling of the fruit is what you talked about. So by then, now we had plenty of famous wineries, the blue chip wineries that were very highly rated by Wine Advocate. So it's not like we're talking about 70s or 80s. We're talking 2007. 97. 97, I'm sorry. Yeah. But, you know, 97 was kind of a marquee vintage mm-hmm. for California. Why? Um, you know, a lot of highly rated wines came out of there. So what do you think precipitated this shift from maybe grape growing to wine growing in a very dramatic way? Um, a combination of thing. I think of things. I think... People started traveling to France. That was okay. a big thing. A lot of people from Napa actually started exploring France and seeing what people were doing in France. Um, uh, we can always point to um, David Aber. You know, he started yes. going to France and he came back with planting BSP trellis, smaller vines, very manicure vineyards that became kind of the staple for high end in Napa for many years. And you're talking about Bordeaux mostly yeah. as a model? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so the picking in the smaller logs, all those things were modeled mm-hmm. after after Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. So people started going to, started exploring more, getting out of the valley and, and seeing what other people were doing. And I think that is one of the best things anybody can do is go and see what someone else is doing. Mm-hmm. And and try to like get out of your comfort zone and doing the same things and just looking at your neighbors yeah i think visiting other wine regions is is really really important um we've come a very long way in that time span how much more room for improvement do you there's always improvement because i mean we got climate change we have challenges there's things that we did 10 years ago that we're thinking oh that was a mistake (laughs) (laughs) you know we're always developing vineyards we're always uh Kind of our ideas continue to change as we go. 
Yeah. Um, you know, we we're seeing the impact of, of hotter weather now, hotter yeah. temperatures. Earlier harvest, maybe. Uh, har- yeah, I mean, the last two years have been an anomaly, I guess, because the, the previous four were really, really hot in, in early harvesting, and yeah. 18 and 19 are a little different. Um, but we still get those days that is really hot for a long time. Yeah. And so, you know, the trellis systems that we used um, five years ago even, um, we're now like, when we're planting, we're thinking on a different way. Like, how can we protect the fruit in the later part of the season? How can we protect the fruit from being fully exposed to the sun for a long time? So then really moving away from um, short spacing where the rows are really close to each other and there's no room to open up the canopies. There's no room mm. for cross arms or anything. You're like just a straight BSP where um, your whole canopy is in four inches, six inches. And that really exposes the fruit. There's not a lot of way to shade that fruit other than spending money on shade cloths and things like that. But if you if you plan your vineyard ahead and really think about um, how you're going to protect your fruit, how you're going to grow those grapes, then you can develop and, and um, organize your trellis system to better accommodate those those plants. So we, we, we're going a little wider, you know, moving away from five foot spacing, going six and a half to seven, mm-hmm. and then uh, doing wide cross arms from the bottom, opening the canopies and allowing sun to come in, but never fully exposing the fruit. And just techniques like that, that um, it's just like an example of how things are always going to continue to evolve. How does the economic factors play into that? Because obviously, you know, the yields will mm-hmm. be different when the spacing is. Well, um, if you're talking high-end vines and yeah. viticulture, if you're planting six, seven-foot spacing, you always want to be, for Napa Valley high-end fruit, you want to be around four, three, four tons to the acre. Mm-hmm. And that seven-foot spacing, you can get that that uh, crop load. Got it. So it, it doesn't, yeah. the amount of fruit doesn't affect it. It's, it's all about quality. More. Yeah, I mean, at the price point that we're working at, but it, it, the number one uh, driving force is quality. Absolutely. You know, and you're kind of validating that thought process that when somebody sees a $200 bottle of wine, I mean, this is a way to justify it legitimately. It's not just vanity. It's not just because it's from Napa. Right. But there's that much effort and expense that goes into the ground in order for this fruit to be produced yeah, I mean, to those high standards. If you if you really think about it, um, every vine gets touched by a pair of hands, you know, six to ten times yeah. a year. Yeah. At least. At least. So it labor is expensive as we know. And and so that that makes farming expensive. I think just to add to your question, because yeah. I totally agree on the farming, but I think we have to coming as an outsider Parker was a big thing for Napa as well, because mm-hmm. back in the 90s, it was the first years that Parker started to give 100 points to Napa Valley. Mm-hmm. And the price of land started to go up. People like David Abreu came back in the early 90s and started developing much better vineyards. We had better, better nurseries to have better materials to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, they started to explore much more clones, clonal selections, better rootstock systems, and um, better rootstocks for the soil and uh, and then going to trellis systems and the architectural design of a vineyard uh, which wasn't existed before uh, it's kind of funny because what Miguel is describing is a lot of it is going back to the old school farming 
um, because California sprawl was the way they planted in, in California in the 70s, mm. or 60s, or even mm. before. Uh, after the head train, they came up with a trailing system, which was a California sprawl, that's how we call it, and it was a big canopy that falls on the sides to protect the vines. Um, so we're, in a way, going back a little bit to how we used to farm. Pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So, when you think of vineyard architecture, are you planning, you know, for the life cycle, whatever that is? I mean, there's so much debate about what an old vine is, and that's right. a whole other subject matter. <laughs> yeah. But let's just Depends say where you are. averaging. <laughs> exactly. If you're in California, it's 15 years. That's old enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When it's 20 years old, we pull it out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, are you actually planning for a certain time frame? For the life cycle of the vineyard, is that how you lay it out? When yeah, I mean, you have planting? to plan for long term, okay. thirty plus years. Thirty plus years, okay. Yeah. And in terms of varietals, I mean, obviously we're in the Cabernet country, yeah. indisputably. Um, it didn't start out that way, oddly enough, but now right. we are fully embracing that. What do you think the future holds, especially with the concerns about, um, you know, climate change and things of that nature? What are your thoughts on the varietal composition? It's it's tricky because um, people are exploring different varietals that yeah. can handle hot like hotter weather, you know, like Spanish Grenache and things mm -hmm. like that that are really used to hot weather. Mm -hmm. um, but then when when it comes time to planting, everybody uses plants cow. So I mean, <laughs> it's it, it economics. It's economics, <laughs> economics very much. You know, yeah. it's economics. Um, so it's 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 difficult. Um, just to sell wine that is, or grapes, for much less than you would, because you can have really good, I'm gonna say really good Syrah, yeah. or Sinfandel that is not by like top notch, yeah. and you can still sell a little mediocre calf for more money. So yeah, at, at the end of the day, it's a business, you know, and, and um, we don't own any vineyards, so we have to look out for our clients. Yeah, no, I understand. It's kind of a, it's a symbiosis. Yeah. Everything has to work. The economics has to work, right? Because yeah. then else we won't have grapes around here. Yeah. And the cost of land is so high, the cost of farming, labor, um, everything is going up and up. So, yeah. and the price of the wine goes up. So it's all correlated in the end. Yeah. Um, that, sorry, that's, sorry, that's one of the reasons you see a lot of young producers like us. I mean, we're lucky enough to get Napa fruit, but a lot of people are moving to the Sierra foothills and places like that to start something because the fruit and everything is just so expensive in Napa. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, you can definitely spread your wings more and, like I said, experiment and do different clonal selections, right. different... But I think that's, maybe that's actually, for me, looking at Napa, I think that's what makes Napa one of the top populations in the world and top wine regions in the world because in the end Bordeaux is Bordeaux, Burgundy is Burgundy, but Napa is up there with them and unfortunately it's, an, it's expensive more than we would like but Burgundy is expensive and Burgundy is getting more and more expensive. It's fairly small place that can grow really really high-end good grapes and unfortunately it's just gonna get more expensive and it's gonna get smaller and smaller. It's not gonna get bigger. Uh, there is almost impossible right now to develop land uh, for good reasons. We need to protect what we have here and we have to think about the environment for the next hundred years or the next thousand years. Yeah. And we have water limits and uh, there's a lot of... Monoculture is never healthy and yeah. the valley is already driven by monoculture. So we have to keep thinking about that and, and that drives the price up. But in, on the end, in the end of the day, 
great wines that age forever. I will put the, my money on Napa Valley Cabernet or on Great Bordeaux bef before a lot of other wines because I know the potential of the land and the potential of the grape. And, uh, and then I, I, we, we try to taste old Napas. I mean, old for Napa, uh, you taste Napa from the 70s. They're totally kicking and alive. Making, they made great wines back then with half of the knowledge and technology we have now and the wines are aging very well. I drank the 69 Chapelet a few months ago. It was mind-blowing. Wow. Um, How cool is that? Yeah. And Philippe Togni, who was the winemaker that made it back in Chapelet, he was telling us that that was young vines planting of Cabernet because they were switching to Cabernet. Because before that they had all kind of field blends and other stuff and uh, they were like, okay, we need to switch to Cabernet. And they started to make back in, I think it was, he said, 66 planting or something like that. Wow. It must be such a blessed spot, that confluence of climate and soil. That's unlike right. anything else. Right. And yeah, that's why we're all here in a way. <laughs> and one of the good things about Napa Valley is the grape growers <coughs> and the fact that the land that is vineyard stays vineyard. So we're not going to have housing in where the vineyards are, you know. So there's regulations to, to protect the yeah. vineyards because yeah. there's other farming communities that disappear you know like Silicon Valley used to be orchards say, and yeah like Silicon that. Valley is probably um, the most disturbing example of all so the, the fact that the Napa vineyards are protected it's 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 yeah. great the one more expensive than one acre of vineyard is one acre of a nice house right yeah. <laughs> so that's why we have those Napa Valley grape growers and they're protecting it uh, we're just having this conversation because yeah uh, I was talking to a friend who makes wine from Punta Costa and he was telling me how the the vineyard prices in Contra Costa are crazy, but it's because they're pulling out vineyards to, to do housing. It's not because they're going to keep those vineyards. So that's, I mean, at least in Napa, they're expensive, but you know they're going to be there for many, many years. They're protected. Yeah. We're going to have vineyards here for generations to come. And, and so that's a huge, huge deal that you know that this region is going to be here for a long time. No, there's a lot of good work that was done by the grape growers and Napalon Trust. Absolutely. Generational, so obviously. Keeping green areas and yeah. protect water sources and watersheds, yeah. Yeah. And I think important. Sonoma is right there too. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we are very, uh, we're sitting in Napa and we're talking about Napa, but I think Sonoma is going through the same transition that Napa went. Um, and we see a lot of those heritage vineyards now that are becoming more and more famous in Sonoma. Mm -hmm. uh, they're protected. They're, not, they're going to keep them as well and keep the tradition going in Sonoma for a long time as well, which is great for my opinion. Very important. And yeah. you have kids and you want your kids to Absolutely. have an opportunity to yeah. have that quality of... I don't know if I want my kids to be winemakers, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, but uh, I definitely want them to drink my wine. And, uh, you know, Miguel and I are keeping library and I think I had a conversation with a friend. They asked, why are we keeping library? Yeah. So I told them for two reasons. One is our insurance and see what's what we made and we can yeah. keep tasting but the other one is to have wines for my kids that they can try it in 20 years and maybe my wine will tell my story and Miguel's story of what we did so and awesome. I hope we'll be alive still but yeah. uh, but just in <laughs> case I mean <laughs> speaking of wine and library let's talk about this beautiful bottle in front of me lapel I want to know about the name I want to know what you make I want to know everything <laughs> if I may I will yeah you should something. drink it and yes. you guys are welcome to try of course so uh, I'll tell what we're drinking because it's not fair, no one can see us, but uh, <laughs> uh, we're pouring uh, La Perle Sauvignon Blanc 2017 um, and we'll, we'll touch this wine a little bit later, but uh, La, Perle, La Perle in French is uh, obviously the shovel. Uh, there's another glass over there. 
and um, it's a it's a pretty funny story that I think Miguel uh, we came Miguel came up with the name and it was pretty pretty cool how it we, we decided to go with it because we're obviously not French Miguel from originally from Mexico I'm from Israel and our third partner is uh, the owner of Silverado farming Pete Richman oh, okay. uh, and he's uh, from California yeah and uh, <laughs> he's the we always laugh is he's, he's our third uh, wheel and um, so we came up with the name the shovel and uh, we're looking for the one tool that we work in the vineyard but we also can use in the winery yeah. and we really couldn't find any or much and we the shovel is definitely that tool um, but it started before when Miguel was in France but you should tell it <laughs> so you know when you go to France and you're gonna work harvest you think it's gonna be this beautiful idyllic thing and at the end of the day it's like my set at Screaming Eagle you know you go in the morning and you work and you go home and you sleep and we were digging tanks for weeks and I remember at towards the end of it I was talking to the French interns and just asking them and I was like how do you say shovel in French and they're like lapel and I told them when I go back to California I'm going to start my own wine and it's going to be called Domaine de lapel because <laughs> all I do is hold a freaking shovel all day <laughs> and then so that was it started as a joke and then when Maya and I started talking about making wine together I was like oh I have a great idea lapel <laughs> Because it's the only tool that you use to plant the vineyard. That's the first tool you use to plant the vineyard. And then that's the last tool you use when you dig the tank. So it kind of connects wine, um, wine making and grape growing together. From start to finish, start pretty to much. Finish. And, and mm -hmm. so that's how that kind of became the symbol of what we're trying to do since we're, we're doing everything from start to finish. You know, we're, we're growing the grapes to make the wines that we're trying to make. And everything is, we, we want to have full control of everything. So just... Having the, the shovel as a symbol makes sense. Yeah. See, I thought that was because Luna was taken. Yeah. <laughs> Koshitsky. Koshitsky was taken. So. <laughs> Koshitsky sellers didn't work out. So, uh, uh, now, you know, I think um, going back to the name is um, in French, obviously everything sounds better in French. So French always because Pala in Spanish was ah, Hebrew is terrible. Uh, so we kind of went with the French name and it really made sense for our story. Um, and then we were thinking a lot about the label and the label took us uh, over two years and we worked with a great designer that is the, this, the guy that designed Task label, which is a very oh, famous that's a, label. That's a gorgeous. The gorgeous packaging, yeah. yeah. And um, so we reached out to him, it's also another funny story, we reached out to him and say, we told him the whole story and what Miguel just said and uh, we said, okay, so this is what we want to do, we want to use the shovel as the main thing. But um, I, I always, since I started to work with Silverado Farming, I always loved the, the logo of Silverado Farming kind Company. Of staring at each us inappropriately. Yeah, yeah so it's just a little farmer guy. Because I, I just yeah. love yeah. that symbolism. Yeah. Me too. And for Silverado Farming Company, their logo is a, is, an, is a farmer. I imagine an old farmer holding a stick looking at his vineyard in the, in the evening. And I always love this logo and I feel like it's telling a great story. So when we started, I asked Pete, that owned the company, I asked him if I can use the logo. And he said, yeah, you know, I'm not sure, maybe. And we sent this logo to our designer and said, look at this logo, this is beautiful. The only thing we want instead of a stick is going to hold a shovel. And we thought we were brilliant. We said, oh, this is a great idea. You, we nailed it. Uh, and we told him the whole story. It's like, he's going to hold a stick. The stick will be in different colors. The yellow for Sauvignon Blanc, red for Cab. Just put it on a white label, we're good to go. And he said, okay, great. I mean, this is beautiful. I like the idea. And then two weeks later, he called us and he said, okay, let's, uh, I want to do a presentation. And Miguel and I jumped on a conversation and I was in front of my computer in my office. He was in his office. And then this thing come up. 
and he brings the label and he shows us this die cut craziness of the shovel in the front of the label and I have to admit in the beginning I'm very traditionalist and I looked at it and I said I ask you something so simple how the how the heck we end up with this thing and uh, Miguel loved it from the beginning and slowly I felt like it's really unique and I uh, feel like our story is unique and it really worked and we fine-tuned a little bit we brought the jaws out to really bring the shovel out to life and um, we, I fell in love with it I feel like I feel like it's so hard to bring something new these days and it's really does yes. bring a new story and a new packaging and a new label in a, in a very simple way and um, so yeah so that's that's kind of how this came to life with the label and it was a process but we like it now this was the first time I saw it when I walked in and I was like oh my god it's a shovel and it's amazing yeah. I mean it's just this almost super reflective response like this is so cool there's times because when people don't know what lapel means and they look at it and then you say yeah lapel means the shovel and then they go Oh, that's a shovel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that makes sense. I see so, it now. Yeah. It's such anyway. a cute name. There's yeah. some effervescence. It's lapel, you think? Lapel. Exactly. <laughs> so we, we, we came up with a very simple goal, I think, jumping back to the brand, that was we collaborated with uh, Silverado Farming back yeah. in 2016. It was kind of a last minute. We said, okay, let's do it. And we said, we put ourselves very simple goals. We said we are going to be the closest we can, we can be to a state winery mm -hmm. without owning the vineyards. And by having a farming company behind us, we can really cherry pick the blocks we want to work mm -hmm. only for the port from their portfolio. We only make wine from vineyards that they farm, mm -hmm. uh, except one that we can share a little bit the story. But um, it's a unique story. And uh, we, have, we farm the vineyards from grape to bottle pretty much. We 100% in charge, 100% in control uh, the, from farming all the way to winemaking, aging and bottling. And so that was our goal uh, with the brand. And uh, to one exception that uh, we can share, it's pretty new news, new news for us. We are actually so crushing grapes to more that are coming from a vineyard that we don't farm. We're not farming it. But um, it's a Chardonnay. Uh, we, can, we can say the name. Uh, it's coming from Bienecido. Uh, because <laughs> we all know vineyard, yeah. Tiny, yeah. Tiny. Uh, we love the vineyard uh, and we really love the Chardonnay from there. And Pete Richmond's first uh, big role in his life was in Bienecido, working in the, those vineyards. And when we decided to make Chardonnay, he said, "You guys make Bienecido. That's that's the place I started. Let's connect the story together." And when we reached out to the owners of Bienecido, uh, they were so excited and they shared with us one of the. Well, at first when I emailed them asking if they had fruit, they told me that they were sold out for the year. Yeah. And then I told Pete, can you email them? And then they emailed me back and said, you should have told us you work with Pete. Of course we have fruit for you. <laughs> They're really nice. And, and we got and one of been, them. Yeah, and they've been awesome. They, they, like, they know exactly what we're trying to do. And, they're and we're a family business as well. And we really in, we're in touch with them. And we are, make, we, get, we are getting one of the oldest blocks in the vineyard. And we're going to make a Chardonnay for Lapel in 2019. So we're very excited. How did you think of Pianesido in the first place, how did you conceptualize um, it? When we decided we wanted to make a Chardonnay, Pete suggested Pianesido Okay, so right it was away, his so. suggestion. Okay, yeah, that makes and, sense. and then we, we had like a business meeting for the other wines, and he came with like three different Chardonnays from Pianesido for us to try. He said, it was very exciting. you guys should get Pianesido, try this wine. That makes wines. sense, but that convinced you. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and it's I, a beautiful place. A, and I always love the South. I, uh, I love the Santas in general. I think... Uh, from Santa Maria, Santa Lucia, and Santa Rita Hills, I think they're making great wines down there. Um, so I was very excited when this opp the opportunity came up. 
So it's Sauvignon Blanc in my glass. Tell me about the yeah, place so, of the grapes. So we love Sauvignon Blanc. I think for both of us, it's our weakness. <laughs> that was uh, one of the driving forces. High five forces, to that. Yeah, yeah, driving that. forces to working in, in Passaglion, where they make white and red wines. Mm-hmm. That's why I was really interested in working harvest there, because I just wanted to see, just because there's most places in Bordeaux, you know, they're only making red wines. Of course. And I wanted to experience the white wine, the Sauvignon Blanc part of it, and, and that was one of the reasons I... So, in Bordeaux, it's quite common to do a Semillon. Yeah, Semillon and Muscadel. Your classic white Bordeaux. Yeah. In California, not so much. There's hardly any Semillon. And there's like no Muscadel. No, exactly. Like we have, I mean, we've been looking for Muscadel clones for years and we cannot find I think UC Davis is the only place that really has Mm. Muscadel. We think we have Muscadel and end up with Muscat and we're like, (laughs) ah, that's not Muscadel and we have to graft it. So, (laughs) happened to us twice now. But this is coming from a unique site and I think this is very unique style of Sauvignon Blanc. Yes, it Um, is. It's uh, sharp, it's laser sharp with high acid. So, this is dry farmed. More energy than... Yeah. Uh, so this is, I'll tell you a little bit the story. This was 20 months in barrels, so what? you will never guess that. Uh, so the way, yeah, the way we make it, it's a it's a dry farmed old vines from Saint Helena um, that Miguel is farming. They are organically farmed, and uh, they're 1981 planting, so I think almost 40 years old. It's fairly old uh, vines, and we pick it on a on an early side. So we adjusted the farming, and Miguel has been working on it for a while. Adjusted the farming a little bit to have a little more exposure early early on in the season. And we're able to pick in low bricks, so we pick it around 20, 21 bricks. So the mm-hmm. wine is usually between 11.5 to 12% alcohol mm-hmm. uh, with crazy acidity of over 9 grams of acid, which I is... I can feel it. Uh, but like then we keep it at 20 months in barrels and very minimum intervention. We let it ferment in the barrels. We keep it on lees. We don't sulfur it for almost okay. 6 months. Okay. And we keep steering it on the lees to build texture to the wine. Yeah. Half of the wine is made in cigar barrels, which is a longer shape barrel. So you have more lees contact at the bottom. Uh, that comes from Sancerre. Uh, they developed it over there. And about 30% new oak here. Uh, that you do, again, I don't think you feel any new oak on it because it's so well integrated after 20 months. And uh, when we started in 2016, they kept asking us, so when are we bottling it? <laughs> and we kept saying, we don't know. We're tasting every month and we let you know. So uh, then in around April or May, we said, okay, I think it's been 20 months. It's ready and it was tasting phenomenal. And uh, so we kind of fine-tuned and developed a style. And, uh, and um, we're very lucky. I mean, the Sauvignon Blanc is the 17 release sold out in 48 hours. And we I'm ran out of Sauvignon Blanc. I'm not surprised. Yeah, I so tasted it now because uh, it's, it's so elevated. It's fresh, it's vibrant, it has this citrusy, lemony, classic Napa Valley, but it's, we still have a hint of grassiness for me, and it's a more elevated acid, obviously, and very fresh style. With, and t- texture is everything for us, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's very sophisticated without right. being pretentious in any way. Exactly. The complexity is there, um, and that texture that you've highlighted, the mouthfeel, certainly your mouth waters. Right. When you taste this... possible if you, right. if you tasted the, the 19, that is just went dry... It's it's so, so acidic. acidic, but it's, it, the way it, it evolves into this wine, yeah. you just have to be patient. Because yeah, you taste it, there's no mid palate on it. When you taste with people acid. now, it's like biting a lemon. <laughs> it's like you taste it, like oh my god, what yeah. are we doing? And uh, it's just slowly integrated, and it's beautiful. Huh? And mine always thinks we pick too early. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we that's always we fight when to pick, and uh, that's what well, that's part of I guess of the the artistic side of all of us. <laughs> The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.